Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're joined by Justin Anovic, who's the Chief Product Officer of Optimizely. Welcome, Justin. Thanks for having me, Melissa. I'm very excited for you to join us. So Justin has been a mentor in our CPO Accelerator for probably the last year that we've been running it. He has great insights into product management that he shares with our product leaders. So Justin, how did you get to be a chief product officer? What was your path to bring you here? Thanks for reading the exact intro I gave you about my amazing insights. So I've taken a probably a different route than most other product folks that I've met. I actually started for the most part in sales, pre-sales. So I ran pre-sales team for about 12 to 15 years. And I was a part of a company that was acquired. And once we got acquired, I looked at the landscape within the organization and said, you know what, I think I want to own the product that I was selling from a product strategy perspective. So as a part of that new company that acquired us, I moved into product strategy and I had product management and I was really learning on the job. It was one of those things like when I was a part of pre-sales, I was always like, oh, like this is easy. Like, I don't understand why, you know, the product team doesn't do X, Y, and Z. And why does it take so long to do things? So I really got a firsthand experience. And so I did that at a company that acquired us for about a year or so. And then I moved over to what's now Optimizely, but it was Episerver at the time. And I took on an even broader remit from including product marketing and product management, pricing, evangelism, UX, and a few things like that, tech alliances. And so a couple of times in my career, Melissa, I've, I've looked and I've thought, you know what, I want to see if I can replicate what I've done in this particular area in a different area, whether that's a different product or a different role altogether. So I took that circuitous route from pre-sales into product strategy, into the broader product remit. That's great. And I think you have a a very unique background, which I love as well, because you came from sales and a lot of product people, you know, they come from everywhere, but there's always been this weird stigma. And I'm sure you get this a lot where product hates sales and sales hates product because there's all these misunderstandings. And yet that's where you came from. So I'm curious, How has having a sales background made you a better chief product officer, do you think? Yeah, certainly it's a a unique experience. I hope it's better (laughs) because I feel like it's more well-rounded. But certainly there were were individuals within the organization when I came in to Episerver at the time that really did have that animosity towards sales. That's the best way that I can put it, kind of to your your point about this conflict. And it always drove me crazy because until you put yourself in somebody else's shoes, you don't know what that group goes through in order to, in that case, achieve, you know, selling an opportunity based on the product that you have. And so to understand both sides of the equation, understand it's helped me with pricing, to understand what customers really bought and how they 
looked at it and how it's presented in the sales cycle through the demo process of what you have available to your roadmap. And it's really trying to articulate that into a process that is very structured, meaning there's a definitive beginning, middle and end in a sales process. And to really understand that and to bring that over to product to then relate it to the team and to what we do from a product perspective that certain things that we're doing don't necessarily make sense in this, you know, to sales or in the sales process. It's not necessarily about the sales team, but it's to prospects, if you will. And just relating that has been helpful. I have focused a lot on the demo to give a better story and an understanding. And most of the team internally from development to product management never really saw the demos that were given from sales. And it might have seemed different. Like, why would they ever show that? And it's really getting an understanding of what customers and prospects are looking for has helped with that relationship. But it's been all along the that journey from the pricing to product management to delivering of features and capabilities. And it's really a good process to be a part of and to understand. And I've stayed close with it, which I think is important to you know stay close with that process to ensure that you're always keeping up to date with what's happening. Because in that sale, you're getting essential feedback as to what the market's looking for, what your competitors are doing. And it's a very truncated view into what's happening in that world. And to not have that connection, in my mind, other people may think differently, but in my mind, to not have that connection with sales, you're missing three quarters of what your business is about. Yeah. And that's the, this is like a piece too, where I see anybody who wants to be an executive product person like you, right? Like a chief product officer, they have to understand sales, right? Like they have to work with sales. Well, it's something that we hear from all of our mentors in the you know CPO accelerator, but also just where I've seen great product people either succeed or fail, right? At the highest levels is whether or not they're getting along with the rest of the executives, they understand the sales. And I don't think you could be a great chief product officer without deeply connecting yourself to that side. So I, I think that background is tremendous, especially uh, for your role as a chief product officer. And I like that. But I guess on the flip side too, we do hear about sales and product are not the same thing. So I'm curious, was there anything that you had to unlearn, you know, as you move from sales into product? What did you have to kind of relearn for yourself to be successful? Yeah, and it is interesting. I would say I was always of the mindset of knowing where where the rails were. Meaning if you go in and you're you're in the sales process and a customer asks you, can your product do this? I always had to make sure in my mind, for my own mental state, moral view of things, I guess, that I always had to know that the product could do that. Like to stay, I always had it like a, a visual of holding on to the train tracks, right? Like you're within the rails. And as long as you're within the rails, then I was fine from a sales perspective because I knew the product could do it. Would it take a little extra? Maybe. And so coming over into product, it's really realizing that the product takes a lot to be designed and to go through a specific process. And you can't just change something at the last minute without having a major downstream impact on the expectations of that product from a supportability perspective to the way things were designed to the way that customers may be able to use it. And I'm not saying that in the sales process, you stretch things by any means. It's that you don't really know what the customer is asking in that three-word sentence, and you have five seconds to answer it. Whereas on the product side, you have to be way more analytical. So 
I would say that I have maybe learned to be extremely analytical about things and to play it out five steps down the path as to my answer that I'm giving or the direction that we're trying to go. So if we know we want to do X and we're asked about that, it's playing it out further and being more analytical as opposed to treating it as a black and white question. Yeah, I think that's really good. Good advice too for people who are trying to transition from sales into product. And I see that that happening a lot too. I think salespeople make great product managers as well because they're so close to the customer, they're understanding what their needs are. But I like that whole, how does this play out a couple steps down the line to really keep you on track, right? And not over-promising things. So you've had a pretty big last couple of years. EpiServer acquired Optimizely. You've turned into Optimizely now. I used Optimizely like over 10 years ago for our first experiments in product management when I was at OpenSky. So I was pretty excited to see that you guys acquired them and now you're the CPO of Optimizely. I'm like, oh, my first love, <laughs> like my first <laughs> testing software, which is really exciting. So you just went through this huge acquisition and merger. What do you do in that case as a chief product officer, right? What are the questions you had to ask yourself before this? What's different? What are the challenges that you're working through right now? Yeah, so there's a lot of pieces to that. So we've done four acquisitions since November of 2019, two of which a few months prior to COVID and then two during. And it definitely changed the landscape. But to take the first part, going into specifically the Optimizely acquisition and even pre-due diligence when we're trying to figure out, is this something that we want to participate in? Even though this process is very applicable to the others that we've done, but it accentuated it in the Optimizely acquisition is you have to know the outcomes. We had to know the exact hypothesis. We had to know the exact business case almost after the first meeting. And I've gone back to it and it's almost the exact business case that we ended up with that we still use today is the one that we did on June 1st of last year of 2020. And we really had to know our stuff and you know know what that business case was. As in, are we going to continue to sell standalone? Obviously, the answer is yes. Where does it continue to help us in our own path towards becoming a dominant DXP player? Where does it help us in helping to build out our developer community. These are all key tenants of what we're trying to do. And what I think most people don't necessarily realize because it's a such, such a small group usually that does that initial due diligence in the first month or two is that we had to be spot on in order for it to all work out. And it ended up you know, being almost exactly what we thought, but we had to really dig deep to figure out what that was. And then during the due diligence process, you, of course, try to validate against that business case, but it's all driven up against that business case that, you know, I was kind of mentioning the analytical mind. That's where it definitely comes into play now is really thinking through all the various steps and the go-to-markets and the different product integrations that we need to do, the different cost areas, the different implications, all those other products. But it's all that pre-work as you're, you know, before due diligence and during due diligence to ensure that it's accurate. I think most people probably don't realize that. And it was a lot more with the Optimizely acquisition for sure than the others, but it, the others follow a very similar path. Yeah, that sounds like a ton of work. And in really trying to figure out like how these products come together, right? Like what are the value propositions? How are they going to, how are they going to help our value propositions? How are they going to make new ones? When you're thinking about 
communicating how this all fits together to the rest of the organization. What are you doing? Like, what are the activities you're putting together? What are the artifacts that help you say, hey, guys, you know, Optimizely as this new company, uh, you know, merged into EpiServer with all these other acquisitions that we have as well? Like, how do you synthesize that all into a vision of where you're going? And what are you doing to make sure that it's communicated well? Yeah, it's funny you ask because we're still going through that now. It was almost nine months, eight months to the day that, you know, we announced the acquisition and we're still going back and realizing that for those of us who have been involved for over a year now, it makes sense. Once you start rolling it out in the same capacity to the field and to the market and other things, there's all these nuances that make sense to me because I've been working on it for a year. But for somebody that's just learning it, it's a little bit more complicated. And certainly bringing all the different capabilities together and all that, it's certainly made it complicated. But when we, I've been through, I think, 12 acquisitions to on the side that was acquired and then 10, uh, you know, where, where I've been on the acquiring side. And over the past few, it's been very apparent that during the due diligence, we have to build demos. We have to build the messaging. We have to agree and communicate with the, you know, the other side to make sure that we're spot on. And then the day that we launched on September 15th and announced it internally, we had five demo scenarios and a bunch of messaging that made sense. And it's evolved since then. But certainly these days, you can't do things without painting the picture and a demo's you know, worth a million words. And so that lives on is that it can't just be a slide. It can't just be a tagline. It can't just be an image. It really has to be a, you know, what the product is going to be. It might not be at that moment, but it sh- helps show the vision to where we're going and everybody internally at the very least, let alone customers and, and prospects. But that was what we you know, learned. The acquisition previous to that was that that helped us streamline everything and you know, validate some of the approaches was really building out those demos. And then to today, you know, we've moved on, we've built capabilities, we release things now. It's not just the demo any longer, but it's constantly delivering the same message and communicating it. Maybe you had to do it in four or five different ways, but it's the same underlying. And people learn things differently and it's continuing to go back to it. Whereas again, like we launched something in September, October. I was like, sweet, I'm moving on to the next thing. And then we're coming back to it because we're like, oh wait, some of that stuff didn't land. So it's really staying close with it. And my entire product organization is a part of it because the products are, are getting to be so integrated and connected across the board that everybody plays a role. And we have to make sure that that's communicated effectively throughout every part of our organization, again, let alone to customers and prospects. I love this concept of, of demoing it because I, I'm such a visual person. To me, I don't understand things unless like I play with them or I see it going and I can get it kind of figured out in my head, but I, I love to see it. So what did you do to like build that demo? I would, I imagine like I've talked to so many chief product officers where <laughs> I suggest like put together that vision, put together these things. And they're like, I don't have time. I don't have time. So. What did you do to I imagine you didn't actually integrate them, right? Because you're just, it's a proof of concept. Like, what did you do to build that demo? Who did you enlist to help you? How did it kind of work? Yeah. So, keeping my arms on the, my, my hands within the rails or staying within the rails, the first thing was we wanted to make sure it was actually possible. I mean, that may sound crazy. Like, of course, vision should be like without constraints and then you work towards that and other ways. But in these situations, I feel very strongly that 
if there's an API, we should test it. Not just because we want to see if it's legit, but because it helps. Like it under, gives us an understanding of what it'll ultimately cost to do this if we know that the API exists. And so the more legit that we could build something, the better off we were. And it certainly helped during due diligence, but it made me feel comfortable saying that this was possible because we built it to a certain point where it wasn't hardened, but we knew that we could do it. And the team is the critical part. I joke that everybody wants to be a part of due diligence for an acquisition until it happens because it's like a, it feels like a 24 by 7 thing where you're constantly just doing new things for that acquisition. But there's a small group of people that would, you know, are involved now that help build those. It's a part of the pre-sales team because I still have have a great relationship with them. And it's a part of my product team. And then we usually involve somebody from development where appropriate. And that's the team that really goes and validates it. But it's literally like you have three days to do this. It's not like, hey, you have three months. It's like, we have to do this by Friday. And you have to make sure that it's somewhat real. You have to make sure that it's possible. And so that team has to be on the same page that I got to drop a few other things in order to do this because this is an important thing. But it's really a, a truly trusted team that we know can deliver in very short timeframes. I love this. It's like, it's everything I love about experimentation and you just acquired an experimentation platform. So exactly. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> this is amazing. You got to test all these strategic concepts. And I do like that because, it, it, you know, what you're talking about is basically pressure testing the strategy, right? Really seeing if it's going to work, making sure that it's not, you know, before you commit to it and an acquisition of that size is a huge commitment. It's actually going to be the best for the business. It's going to be something that we could all see. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I think that's amazing. All right. So there was a lot of like figuring out how these products work together. But you also just merged two teams together. And I guess with the other acquisitions as well, you had to bring four other teams into EpiServer. And now you guys are all optimized. Like, how do you think about leading through that? Right? Like, how do you think about bringing all those cultures together? What were the key critical things that you needed to do as a chief product officer to ensure that that type of merger would be successful? Yeah. It's certainly hard bringing together totally different cultures and everything. I know that there's lots of sayings out there that, you know, talk about culture kills other things. So about before the first acquisition in November of 2019, I think I had like 22, 25 people in the overall group. And now we're close to 70. And so at a certain point, it became obvious that we can't play hero ball anymore because it's not scalable. Right. Like you can't have that one person that you're like, Hey, can you do that again? Like we just need some hero ball and you have to do things that's to scale. And that means that you have to be okay with things not being maybe as high quality initially or things not going exactly as you're expecting because people are learning on the job and then bringing in multiple cultures, trying to figure out, well, not only like you used to use Google, we use Microsoft, you used to use Slack, we use Teams. It's even beyond that, of course. That plays a role in it, but like just understanding how people do their job to what their job was. And is it a part of how I want to do it or that we want to do it? Right. And we definitely take a, I feel like a unique approach that <laughs> like we'll relearn something if it makes sense. I always tell people like when we bring them on board, whether we've acquired somebody or hiring somebody, like if you see a stupid process, it's because we don't know it's stupid. <laughs> like, know that it's stupid yet. We're totally willing to experiment and learn and all that stuff. As long as it's grounded in reality and some thought, we'll think through it again. And I think that's really important in integrating teams is that it's not always about the 
acquiring company redoing the acquired company. And certainly certain acquisitions have been that they don't trust that fact. They're like, you're going to lay everybody off and we're going to have to do every single thing your way. And no matter what is said, is not believed until you prove the point that it's not the case. And so it's really just being people first, frankly, in my opinion, like understanding their motivation and understanding about them and understanding their qualities and taking some of their input where appropriate and updating the group, not because you feel like it's a win to help them buy into it, but because it makes sense. It's like a good idea. And that's been the most important learning thing, you know, the the most important thing that I've learned as a part of this. But I've always based a lot of the things that I do off of strength finders. I'm not sure if people are familiar with that approach or book or quiz or whatever, but I've been enamored with that, not only from an individual perspective, but from a team building perspective, and then also building a product. Like I think it's applicable. And it's really about like investing more in the things that you're doing well and getting the things that you don't do well up to a certain average area. And that's an individual, that's a team, and that's a product because you're really wanting to make sure that you excel at something and that you're not just average at everything. And the whole premise around string finders is like, you know, the American education is about bringing everybody up to the average area. And if you're bad at math, you're going to spend more time on math. But what if you're great at English or you're great at literature or you're great at history? We don't typically in the American school system invest in that. And so I really latched on to that because I think that's important is that you can't be average or good at everything. You have to excel at a few things and everybody has something in them that, that they excel at. They may not know it yet, but in my view, everybody has something that they can excel at. And I really bring that to like leading these teams and working with individuals to make sure that we address that. And we're starting to, once again, get into taking the quizzes and all that stuff. I've kind of done it ad hoc as acknowledge it, but I use that as an important premise for what I do. So how do you use strength finders with your team? You get them to all take the quiz, right? So that you know what they're strong at, what they're weak at. What are you using those results to make decisions about? Yeah, so we are just getting back into having everybody take the actual quiz and understand it. And and we're having everybody opt in. It's not a requirement. I think it's important because I've done it in the past and made it a requirement and people have done it in Hammond and Hawd and it didn't have the same impact. So out of the 70 people, if 20 do it, then you know that's fine with me. But it's to me, as a manager, as a new manager, and a lot of the t- people on my team are new managers, as a new manager, in my opinion, you feel like everybody should think like you, either currently or in the future. And so you try to adapt them to think like you, when in reality, they might compliment you in a skill that you don't have. And that to me is what Strength Finders is about whether it's the quiz or whether it's just doing it and observing, is to understand the different skills that people have and the different tendencies to help understand how you complement each other, as opposed to, I've seen it happen so often, I'm sure you have, I've done it myself, of course, is that you try to have everybody think the same way. And that's counterintuitive in many respects because it doesn't work. And that's where I'm hoping to get back into strength finders again, the actual quiz to actually have the real output as opposed to my observations and you know discussions with individuals. But I, I'm a huge proponent of it because I, I know it works and it, it helps everybody understand others. And that's the important part of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that diversity of thought, I think is so critical for product management because you know, without that, 
we we can't think of the what ifs that we might not be in tune with. We just had like uh, Kathy Pham on the on the podcast probably about two weeks ago by the time we launched this, and she talked about how really having the different backgrounds, the different diversity of thought, the different way people approach problems can help you too from like a product ethics standpoint. So I think it's so important to build your team that way so everybody can be looking at stuff from different angles. So I love, I love using the strength finders for that. I think that's a really great idea. Do you find that your product managers tend to spike on certain areas of the strength finders? Is there one that like one strength that everybody keeps coming back to or is it, nah, we've got like a pretty good pool of people who have all different types of strengths? Yeah, I would say there's a pretty diverse set of strengths. There isn't anybody that, there isn't a certain thing that we've, we've spiked on. I would say that naturally though, product managers versus what we have with evangelists who are the folks that work very closely with the field, kind of the liaison we have versus like our strategy team. Like certainly there's different, you know, strengths in each one of those core areas because you have to be a little bit maybe more outgoing and, you know, have a little bit more analytical mind if you're maybe in strategy than maybe if you're in evangelism where you need to be acknowledging something in the moment, <laughs> right? Like there's a totally different approach and it's very difficult to make one into the other. And product management, I would say that, you know, it's a pretty diverse set of skills that the individuals have. That's good to hear. I'm, like, I'm, I'm excited to hear about that. I'm always trying to pick, like put into picture what types of skills or traits make successful product managers. But I think there's just so many different flavors of product managers that you can get, which makes it really fun because everybody approaches stuff a little bit differently. So it's cool to hear that you're finding that too, that it's all pretty diverse. So when you're thinking about the next steps with the merger and the acquisition, you know, making everybody under one brand for Optimizely, what else is on your plate as a chief product officer? What else are you looking at now? So it's constantly trying to come back to those three tenants that I mentioned, which is expand DXP, it's our digital experience positioning, our digital experience platform positioning. <laughs> we also have one for democratizing experimentation. We found during the process this time last year that it started to gravitate towards teams and organizations that could spend more, that were larger enterprises, and maybe some of the smaller ones were left out or the mid-markets were left out from the possibilities. So that's an important piece for us is what can we do to help democratize experimentation? And then we feel our developer community is very strong, but we want to make it even stronger to have greater adoption across all of our products. So those are the three things that we really focus on with regularity and anything that we do. I, sometimes I forget, but I'm, I come back to it at a certain point to check against those and what we're doing. And what we're focused on for sure from a product organization is that we can't just acquire companies right? We have been great at delivering capabilities, but that might have been taking a, a perceived backseat. And so our key is to have regular product wins, whether it's the integrations amongst the capabilities that we acquired or creating new capabilities on our own. What we regularly hear, and one of the things that, frankly, I thought I would be better at coming into a CPO role than I probably am, and it's some huge area that I have to continue to work on, is communication with research and development, with the engineering team. And I feel like I would regularly have one-way conversations, like present stuff and, and all of that, but not really have the appropriate dialogue. And look, I mean, 
they want to work on exciting things. They want to work on cool things. They want to work on innovative things. Sometimes we have to, of course, you have to build against the products that we have and all of that. But it's really ensuring that there's community aspect to product and there's a great connection with R&D and that everybody understands the direction we're going. Everybody understands what we're doing, or at least is articulated to. They might not agree with it, right? But like wholeheartedly, and there might be some questions, but it's having a great dialogue. And frankly, the last acquisition that we did, Zayas and a few folks from Optimizely, we've created a new great approach that we didn't have before, which is really like getting the key folks on board and that there's a say, and it's not just a messaging exercise, right? I think that that's where I gravitated to much coming from sales was it's a messaging exercise. In reality, it's it's a full product exercise. And I was too regularly missing the communication part with R&D. So that's like my overall focus is key product wins, making sure that everybody understands what we're doing, the direction we're going, why we're doing it, what our mission is, and staying in tune with that, but also collecting key feedback from the key individuals across the organization and not just you know gravitating towards the field. As I'm talking to you, the thing that's really standing out to me as well is like you have this laser focus around your product strategy. You're like, these are the three things that we're looking at. We're trying to expand our developer community, you know, this, that. And then when you're laying out your challenges, you're very focused around that as well. And this tends to be the biggest issue that I see in companies, whether they're merging or not, is just like finding that focus, doubling down on it, not straying from it. How did you come about to like set those goals for Optimizely, you know, with the rest of the leadership team? And then what have you been doing to ensure that everybody's staying on track on them and not straying into different directions? It's very difficult, right? So the initial thing of coming up with those three was pretty easy, getting agreement with the leadership team, communication, and just generally articulating what all this means. Because those three sound bites: expand DXP, democratize experimentation, expand developer community. Okay, that makes sense. But then how does it relate to me as the developer who's developing on our commerce solution, right? It's getting down to that level of detail. And we've struggled, right? Because we put something out, we write a 25-page document that is about our vision and direction. We post it, we talk about it at all hands, we communicate it regularly. But that's a moment in time. And I'm normally like on to the next thing mentally, as opposed to like continuing that and landing it appropriately. And so there's laser focus on those things because I know that that's, there's a significant area for improvement there. And just being honest about it, frankly, internally, and putting a tail between the legs and being like, yeah, you're right. We didn't land it the best way. We'll try it again. And it's constantly, like I said earlier, like it's the same thing, but we have to say it nine different ways or five different ways because people learn differently. Everybody's remote. We haven't been in an office. I still haven't even met, Melissa, I still haven't even met a single person face-to-face from Optimizely and we've been a part of the same company for eight months, right? Like it's very difficult now and there's no playbook that has existed. We're learning all these things collectively on our own. And that communication is tough. Just because we have three Zoom calls over the course of a month and write two documents and post it in Teams with regularity and do other sessions doesn't mean that more than 50% of the organization understood it, accepted it, read it, acknowledged it. And so it's just constantly dripping the same thing and landing what we're trying to get across. And I think, again, looking back, 
we're too often onto the next thing, as opposed mm-hmm. to like staying focused on that, you know, those three things, how it relates, how does it relate to you, your product, all that stuff, and going much deeper than maybe we ever had to historically. Yeah. Oh, man, I, it's got to be so much more challenging trying to like streamline all of this during remote work as well. A whole new team that you haven't met yet. That, that's crazy. I know somebody else who's in the, a very similar position. It's, it's wild years this last year, but hopefully you guys will get to meet in person soon. Any plans for that? Yeah, I have my first business trip next week. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I forgot how to book a trip. (laughs) I know. I'm like, I forgot how to fly. (laughs) I never thought I would say. Like, I I took 189 flights one year, and I never thought I'd be in the position where I haven't flown in a year. I know. Yeah, uh, we went on vacation last week. We went to Yellowstone and Glacier. And Mm -hmm. we got to the airport. Charlotte Airport was just ridiculous. I've never seen it that way. And it was immediately like, oh, I remember the stress. But like, you don't yeah. really think about it until like it's been gone for a year. And then you're like, oh, right. But it is certainly interesting. Yeah, it's going to be wild getting back into that. But that's exciting that you're going to get to meet your team, go on your first business trip. When you're communicating all of this to your team as well, how are you like testing for understanding? Like, I know it's just repetition, repetition, but what's the type of feedback you're looking for them to say like, yes, okay, I think they have it takes various forms. I mean, we've launched different internal training programs where, you know, we put things up on Highspot or Litmus or, you know, whatever solution we post things, you check to see if people read it. And then, you know, you get a report, all that stuff. But I think that that's fine doing tests and all that stuff. I personally, I've always joked that if I didn't do this career, I would have probably been in the FBI because I'm good at asking (laughs) questions without people knowing my intent. And so I just like, Without quizzing people, I quiz people. And if I find that after talking to five people, they didn't understand that, it doesn't make sense for me to continue to say, what do you mean? I put it in that document. How do you not know that? Well, if five people end up saying that they don't understand it or whatever, then there's something wrong with the delivery. So there's certainly the approach, the analytical approach to just check to see who's you know, doing what, what tests they're taking, you know, and reviewing that, who's showing up to different meetings, all that stuff. But there's also the passive check with numerous people and in conversation, really figure out if some of the things that we've talked about have landed. I get more value from the second one because it's obviously like direct communication, but you can ask a lot of follow-up and you, you don't have to read through the intent of a survey report or something like that. We've also launched a bunch of, a bunch of surveys and we've really expanded how we're really com- collecting information. But Certainly that those five conversations, as long as it's not a one-off knee-jerk reaction, you know, as long as it's five or more and you're collecting feedback that way, that's where I usually get the most input and then, then adjust. Then it's, then it's like, oh, okay, well, we need to go back to the drawing board or adjust what we're doing. Yeah, that sounds like a, a good practice, a good habit to get into, trying to, to probe. So for our product leaders who are listening, for those who are, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of people are going through mergers right now, acquisitions. What would be your advice to a chief product officer who is in that position? You're about to merge with somebody, about to get acquired. What would you advise them to do? I would say certainly understand track record, talk to individuals at the business if you can, partake as much as possible in the due diligence and get to know people. I think that that's been a few you know mistakes is that, you know, the other side, if you will, didn't really take a chance to get to know the team on, on the acquiring side. But it's really give it a chance, understand, take a step back, don't make any decisions within minutes of understanding what's happening. And it's really being you know analytical about it. 
uh, everybody jokes that like, you know, when I'm on a call and they don't hear me talking, they're like, is everything okay? And I'm like, I listen too, right? Like I don't just talk. And it's really just not making that, that knee jerk reaction to something and to see how it's going. But honestly, I mean, it, it's hard to say from other situations, right? From our situations, it's partake in the conversation. It's understanding that you have as much input as anybody else in the organization to help make an impact. And it's really to be a part of it. Don't wait for something to happen to you, for you. Go out and make it happen. I've always lived by the approach of like, it's up to me to give my opinion and it's up to you to listen to it. And I try to tell anybody who we acquire or coming into the business, like, I believe in that approach, right? And if you sit there and you're quiet, it's just going to happen to you and you may not like it. Whereas if you participated, it's probably a better outcome if it's the right situation. Fantastic advice for, for all our product leaders out there. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Justin. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yes, thanks for having me. So if anybody wants to learn more about you or your work, where can they find you? So you can certainly email me. I have a regular email address, justin at optimizely.com. But I also have one that people don't like me using, but I like it. It's called <laughs> bearded underscore fool at optimizely.com. And then I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn. LinkedIn's probably the best. And there's probably only one Justin Anovic with my spelling. <laughs> so I love hearing from people and talking to people. And for me, I would have always wanted to be a manager first, no matter which business I'm in, Melissa, right? And so I love working with people and helping out where I can. So I'd love to hear from anybody. Great. So definitely go find Justin at those avenues and stay tuned next week for our next episode of the Product Thinking Podcast.